chapter 11 is where we're at. And kind of put this in context for you. Um, where we're at in the Revelation, John, John is, is basically hearing God paint a picture of, of what is going on, uh, both in his time and what will continue until the end. And uh, as we know, we've kind of gone through what I'm going to call two, two different cycles of seven, where uh, in each case, God is saying, John, uh, planet Earth during the last days is going to be a hard place to live. Well, that goes all the way back to Genesis. I mean, it's, it starts in Genesis when Adam and Eve fall, God puts a curse upon the earth. And he says, the, the purpose of the curse is not just to crush you. I'm not a mean God. But the reason we have hurricanes and volcanoes and tornadoes and floods and all the yucky stuff is, is not because nature, Mother Nature is wild. It's because God said, I curse my earth. And I want these things to be a part of it because what's going to happen is human beings are going to try to stop a flood. Ever try to stop a flood? Good luck. It ain't going to happen, right? We've been watching it on TV. This is the 10th year anniversary of what? Katrina, right? So you look at pictures of, of my, my place of birth. I was born in New Orleans. In fact, the only hospital left standing after Katrina was Oshner Clinic where I was born. And uh, you were in Katrina you saw coffins floating by because they have to bury above the ground. You saw all, just the whole place was a wreck, okay? Who could stop that? And everybody blamed the government. The government, this is a government's problem. Like, no, the government didn't bring a hurricane. God brought a hurricane. And he dumped all this water on you. And guess what? People died in it. God created billions of dollars of a mess. Why? So human beings can get the picture. Can you stop a flood? No. Can you stop a tornado? No. Right? I get a kick out of it. I read this article you know, uh, here about a year ago. Bill Gates and, and a group of people, investors, are trying to figure out a way to get up in the air and spread some kind of seeds in there and stop tornadoes. I'm like, that's awesome. Go for it, Bill. <laughs> like, have fun. Spend billions of dollars and try to stop a tornado. Ain't going to work. Right? We can't stop the common cold. Right? Why? Or where does it all come from? From God. So when you're John and you're listening to this and, and it's getting progressively worse as we move towards the end of time, part of you says, God, just stop. This is horrible. When, you've got to bring this to a close. And so what we've said is every, every time you get to, to this point where John is going to be shown the end, God just takes a little time out and he lifts him up and he says, I'm going to show you, John, that during this time where the earth and everything in it looks completely out of control. And you're convinced that the devil's winning the fight. I want to show you he is not. I am in control. I am fully in control, right? So uh, we've heard these, these trumpets being blown uh, by the angels, six of them. And before the seventh trumpet is blown, which takes us to the end of the world, one of these timeouts happens. And God says, John, come up here. Let me show you that I am in control. He does that through chapter 10 and part of chapter 11. In chapter 10, which we, we finished off last week, remember what happens is God sends to him this Escurion Achalas, this great or mighty angel. And when you look at the angel, you see in the angel all these characteristics of God. The angel has a, has a rainbow halo to represent what? My promise to you. I'm, I am with you, right? Uh, the, the angel has these legs that look like pillars of fire to represent what? Well, 
When do we see the pillars of the fire? We see them in the Old Testament. When God is taking Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land. What is he saying to John through that angel? I'm taking you out of the wilderness of this land here into a new land. It's called New Earth. And I'm going to take you there, John. So don't panic. Know that I am in control. Chapter 11, to me, gets pretty intense. But it, you'll, you'll see signs of it in our world today. But, but what it's pointing to is something that is yet to come. Remember that um, what the time period that chapter 10 and 11 are dealing with uh, is representative of the whole of Revelation, which takes us from the advent of Jesus Christ's birth to the last day. Okay? But in particular, chapters 10 and 11 are focusing upon, remember what the angel had in his hand? A little scroll. A, a segment of that time period that we call the half a time. So if you're, if you're new to our class, we say, God, here's how God tells time. You, you and I look at our watch and we count seconds and minutes and hours. God does not. His time clock says this. There was a time. That's past. That's the Old Testament. And there is a time. That's right now. We're in what the Greeks would call the, the, the Ionios, <clears throat> the, the season of, of the New Testament, the coming of Christ. There's a time and a time and a half a time. Okay. That half a time is representative of that last period of time during which God begins to permission things to happen in a more intense way for the purpose of breaking human beings, breaking our stubborn spirits and calling people back to him. And why is it half a time? Because God says, I don't want it to be a whole season. For the sake of my elect, for the sake of those who belong to me, I'm going to cut this period of time short because you won't want to be alive during this time. People will want to die. It is a powerfully painful period of time. Okay? So what does that time frame look like? Well, the, the great angel tells us God is in control. This section, chapter 11, tells us that God is in control, but it won't look like it. It won't always look like it. All right, so follow me. Let's dig into this. Chapter 11 says, then, then I was giving a measuring rod like a staff. All right, so here's John. He's just got the, the great angel. He's like, okay, good. God is in control. Very next thing, here, take this. This is a measuring rod. It's like a staff. I think I said last week, I think that's intentional language. You, you don't, you typically measure things with a staff, right? You typically measure things with a tape measure or a, I have probably an app for it, an app or, or whatever you want to do, but not a, not a staff. Why is it a staff? Well, who does a staff belong to? Psalm 23. Who does a staff belong to? The Lord is my shepherd, right? So we're measuring. We're going to measure the temple, but, but recognize that how do we measure it? We're going to measure it with the staff of the one who is the great shepherd. That's going to be our tool for measuring it. So, so what are we measuring? Well, it's told, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and all those who worship there. Okay? So what are we measuring? We're not measuring a physical building, right? What are we measuring? We're measuring all of those people who belong to Jesus Christ and who worship him. We're measuring the church. Okay? Luther always said, if you look at the church, there's two parts to it. There's the, the church visible and the church invisible. So the church visible is what we see on planet Earth, right? We look around, we go, there's a Methodist church, there's a Baptist church, there's a, some kind of crazy church, there's a, you know, so we, we just have that. That's how, we, that's how we do it, right? 
but he says inside the visible church, there are believers and unbelievers. Okay? That always kind of hits me as, uh, as a pastor, I think. Inside of the visible church, what I see with my eyes, there are believers and there are unbelievers. Okay? Trust me when I tell you this, and I, need, I really need to say this to you. There is not one single bone in my body, in my body, that tries in any way to judge that. I never look at a congregation and say, oh, I wonder which ones of these people are believers and which ones are non-believers. I do not judge that at all. Why? Because I, I don't have God's eyes. I can't see hearts. Okay? But what I can tell you is that in any visible church, there are believers and there are unbelievers. And so Luther says that's what you're seeing on the surface. The invisible church, he says, are the body of people who do believe in Jesus Christ and they are not denominational. So you can't say they're Baptist Lutherans. They're people who belong to Jesus Christ because they put their full trust in him. Now, Luther was always challenged by people because you remember he came out of which church? Did he come out of the Catholic church, right? And so probably the most... The most uh, <laughs> challenging question Luther was ever asked, or one of them anyway, was Luther, you know, you, you're talking about this invisible church. Is it possible that bishops or cardinals or some of those leading individuals in the Catholic church might belong also to the invisible church? You remember how I answered that question, by the way? It's one of my all-time favorite Luther quotes. John, you probably remember this. Here's what he said. He says, well, we are the body of Christ. And he says, as the body has such things in it as snot, pus and venereal disease so might the cardinals <laughs> be a part of the body that was luther by the way he was kind of like Duck, sometimes but what he was saying is in his own way yeah there's things about him i'm like what is wrong with you you need to see a psychiatrist luther you know but what he was trying to say is it doesn't catholic doesn't matter baptist doesn't matter lutheran doesn't matter none of that matters what matters is are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you trust in him? That's what we're measuring with the rod of Jesus Christ. That's why it is a rod and not a measuring tape or app. Okay? Um, so this is a, a, a spiritual measuring that's, that's taking place in contrast to when we go in the Old Testament, we see, we see some scenes where angels come and they say to prophets, I want you to measure the temple. In the Old Testament, Typically, when an angel comes and says, I want you to, to measure the temple, what's happening is the temple is getting ready to be rebuilt, physically rebuilt. Okay? And so the angel is signifying God is getting ready to rebuild the temple. Here, he's not. Here, he's saying, I want you to measure all those who belong to Jesus Christ during this period of time called the half a time. Now, the second part of this is critical. Look at what he says. Verse 2, do not measure... <clears throat> the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay. So when you picture the temple, or you look at pictures of the temple, Herod's temple particularly, what you'll see is it's made up of, of sections, right? Courts. And uh, I always think about this. Um, you know, when we, sing, when we sing the Nook Dementis, you know, Oh, Lord, let us now thy servant depart in peace. You guys remember singing that somewhere in your, your youth? That's taking us to the temple. <clears throat> when Jesus Christ was born, and you had these two people, Simeon 
right? And who? And Anna. And both of them said, God, would you grant us to see the Savior before we die? Okay. So where do they go? They both end up at the temple on the exact day that Jesus Christ is being brought to be dedicated to the temple. <clears throat> now, a lot of people mix that up. They're like, well, that must have been like seven days or eight days after his birth. I'm like, no. He's already been circumcised. Jesus has been. And the period of waiting has taken place. It's a 40-day period of waiting because a woman could not come into the temple after giving birth for a 40-day period. So now she comes into the temple. Um, by the way, if when you listen to these two people's names, Simeon and Anna, you know what they mean? Simeon means sign. Anna means grace. And so give us a sign of grace. And they walk into the temple. And they don't know anyone. Guess where they are? They're in the out outside of the, the court is the place where the women come. And that's where Mary has come with Joseph. He's with her. And these two come into that temple and immediately God says, this is the one. This is the sign of grace. And they see him. That's how the temple is set up in these sections. Okay, So um, the outer court would be a court that was reserved for People who are not Jewish, Gentiles, would come and they would say, I'm a God-fearer. I, I, I want to know more about this God of the Jews. I'm here to listen to you know, the rabbis speak about this, this God. <clears throat> so when it says, don't measure the outer court, the intention is to say, with, the, with, the, with the, the staff, you're measuring all of those who belong to and trust in Jesus Christ. Don't measure those who are outside in the outer court, because guess what? They do not belong to Jesus Christ. They are part of both people in the world that, that simply say, I don't believe in God. Atheists. They are part of what, what I see. If, if somebody said to me today, what's, the, what's the, the largest denomination in America today, in, in Christianity? I would say agnosticism. There are millions of agnostic Christians who would say to me, oh yeah, I believe in God, but I mean, we don't absolutely know who he is, and I, th I think there's probably multiple ways to get to God, and maybe Jesus is one of them. That, that'll be my way. <clears throat> They're not followers of Jesus Christ. They're not followers of Jesus Christ. They, they believe there's just a lot of different ways you can get there. Most would say just, you better live a pretty good life. I'm like, mm-mm, outer court, okay? Okay. Uh, there are people inside of the church who say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely, I believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus says there's going to come a day I look at them and I say, they, they yell out, hey Lord. And I say to them, what? I don't know you. Okay, That's the outer court. It's a scary thing to think about, but it's a reality that there are, there are people who, who both say outwardly, I don't believe in Jesus. And there are people who would say, no, I do. Outer court. And what he's saying is it's going to be given over to this group of people. Now, this is the authority of Jesus. I'm going to give authority to these people who are outside of the court, to unbelievers. I give them authority to trample the holy city. That does not sound good, does it? That's bad, right? Yeah, it is. It's God saying, I'm authorizing now unbelievers to have authority over or trample down my holy city, okay? For a limited period of time. How long? 42 months, okay? By the way, 42 months, three and a half years, and 1,260 days are all the same thing, right? It's all the same period of time. 
What is that period of time? All three of those refer to this half a time. That's part of God's watch, all right? So during this half a time that I believe is yet to come, uh, what we're going to see is <clears throat> people outside of belief coming against Christians in a harsh way, and actually God is authorizing that to happen, okay? Do we see signs of that today? Absolutely, we see signs of that today in, in, in an increasing measure. Um, I've referred to this just a little bit uh, in the message today, but I always have to kind of watch my words when I, when I do. But, um, you know, one of the things that's an obvious example of what we're talking about is um, this whole uh, Karagash uh, incident where, you know, ISIS is, is coming against some cities in northern Iraq and they'll take the city. And the first thing they do when they take the city is they, they go, they literally go door to door and they knock on the door and they'll ask the family, are you Christian? Now if the family says, yes, we're Christian, they don't stop there. They ask the next question. And the next question is, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? I think that's interesting. That even, even darkness knows there's a difference, right? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? If the answer is yes, they will take their swords and they are now cutting off the heads of the children in front of the parents. Okay. Now, we don't think about this, but why cut off the head? It's symbolic. It's meant to say we're cutting off the head of the enemy. Who's the enemy? Jesus Christ. And by doing it to children, guess what we're assuring? That this this movement called Christianity will not be passed on to the next generation, but it'll be cut off and stopped here and now. That's the symbolism behind what ISIS is doing. When you and I watch this happen on the news, which, by the way, it doesn't really make the news, does it? Yeah, I, we don't want to put that on the news because we might make, we don't want to use words like radical Islamic. We don't want to do that. That's politically incorrect, but guess what? It's biblically absolutely what is being spoken about here that in increasing measure, there's an authorization of this group of people that are trampling the holy city. They're outside of it. And you watch it happen, and the first thing you say to yourself is, my God, why would you let little innocent babies have their heads chopped off by these crazy lunatic people? God, surely you can at least stop that. You know what God is saying to us today? Oh, no, this is just the beginning. Hang on, it will get much worse. By the time we get into that half a time, you will absolutely not want to be alive. That's what he's saying to us today. Okay? So what we're saying, well, then, God, what do we do? Well, kind of interesting how, how this continues. Here's what he says. I, God, during this same period of time, am going to grant authority to my two witnesses. And they're going to prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. So during the same period of time that I'm allowing the, the city, the holy city, those who believe, to be trampled on, killed for their faith, persecuted for their faith, stuck in jail for their faith, um, during that same period of time, guess what? My two witnesses, I'm going to authorize them to be at work during this same period of time, okay? So you say to yourself, well, well why are they clothed in sackcloth? Well, sackcloth is, is again, it's imagery, 
right? All of these are just pictures, images, meant to say something. Sackcloth in the Old Testament is, has two different purposes. You wear sackcloth two different times. One time you wear sackcloth is when you are grieving, okay? So uh, when, when the news is, is delivered, you know that, you know, David, David, your son Absalom has been killed, right? Uh, what David would do would be rent his clothes and put on sackcloth. By the way, sackcloth, uh, if you want to imagine it, about the closest thing, you know, that you can imagine would be putting on, um, putting on a burlap sack, you know, it's, it's kind of scratchy. It's not, not the nicest thing to wear, but you, you're wearing it because you're reminding yourself of the pain that you're in. There's grief, okay? The second reason that you wear sackcloth is sack, sackcloth represents what? The sign of repentance. I'm calling you to repent. And so if you think about it, what these two witnesses are, they're in grief. Why are they in grief? Well, we want to say they're in grief because the heads of kids are being chopped off. And these people are trampling the whole city. That's not why they're in grief. You know why they're in grief? Because the people cutting off the heads don't know Jesus. That's why they're in grief. They want to bring them to repentance. The little child, here's what they would say. The little child has been rescued from this, this destitute earth and brought into the presence of God. That person with the sword in his hand, he is outside of the courts. And he'll be outside of God's grace for eternity. And so my sadness is not over the child, but it's over the one who bears the sword. And it is a desire to see that person come to know Jesus Christ. Repent. That's the whole purpose of this is the earth is getting worse and worse. Why? To try to break those people who think they have authority, think they have power. And God says, no, I'm going to speak into you through my two witnesses. Okay? Um, the two witnesses, it's kind of interesting the way they're described in verse 4. It says that the witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, so again, we're taking us back into the Old Testament and kind of answering the question exactly. Are there just, are there like two witnesses, like two people that come and they're, they're witnessing? No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's greater than that, right? Uh, so who are the two witnesses? Well, he's giving you the clue. He says, well, just go back into the Old Testament and find the lampstands and the olive trees and you'll, you'll understand who they are. Like, well, where do I find them? Okay, well, the answer is in Zechariah chapter 4, right? Zechariah chapter 4, beginning verse 2. Flip over there and you'll see, you're going to see these um, olive stands. And a lot of this imagery, right, is just coming right to us out of um, the Old Testament. Okay. So when you get to verse 4, I'm just going to kind of read through just a little bit of it. You have this vision of a golden lampstand. And um, here's what it says. It says, the angel who talked with me came again and he woke me up like a man who was waking out of his sleep. All right, so this is just like John is having a vision. This is, this is a vision that's being given to Zechariah. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, behold, a lampstand, all of gold, and a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it, okay, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are the two olive trees 
by it. One is on the right of the bowl, the other is on the left of the bowl. And the angel who talked with me said, what are these, my Lord? And by the way, this has just always cracked me up, is in all of these visions, the angels love to just mess with humans. <laughs> they do. They really do. They're like, well, what could that be, my Lord? The angel's like, let's see what he says. <laughs> and every single time an angel does that, the human being says, I don't know, <laughs> you know. So it says, then the angel talked with me and answered and said to me, you dumb fool. You don't know what these, well, it didn't exactly say that. But he says, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Okay, the angel's like, man, what is wrong with these people? They don't, they don't know much at all. All right, so he says, well, this is, this, and he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Remember who Zerubbabel was? Zerubbabel was a governor during the period of time that um, the temple was being re rebuilt by Nehemiah. Uh, so Ezra and Nehemiah, those two books go together. They take us to the post-Babylonian period when the temple is going to be rebuilt and Zerubbabel is a, is a governor. And he says, uh, Zerubbabel. Now these words, if you don't have them underlined in your Bible, get them underlined because you, you need them. This is one of the most beautiful things ever said to a human being by an angel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone, and amidst it shall be shouts Grace, grace to it. And I just love this little scene out of the Old Testament because it's, it's so beautiful and picturesque of how God works. Zerubbabel, remember, is the one who is, in a political way, kind of overseeing what's happening as Nehemiah is leading these tribes of people to take the walls of, of Jerusalem and rebuild it and rebuild the temple, right? Well... The enemies of Israel are coming against that and um, mocking Nehemiah and basically threatening. We're going to, you, you know what, if the little flimsy wall you're building, if, even if a fox were to walk across it, it would fall over. We're going to knock that thing down, right? So God comes to Zerubbabel and he gives him this word to bring back to the people of Israel. And the word is a beautiful word. Here's what he's saying is, we're not going to try to overcome these, this enemy by our might. We're not going to try to overcome this enemy by our power. Put your armies away. Put your swords away. Put your guns away. What we're going to do is we're going to rely solely upon the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ and his spirit. And here's what he says. The mountains will be flattened like a plain. Your enemy will be leveled. That's what it will be. And he says, in the end, you will bring forth the top stone. I think that's interesting that it's a stone, right? And the top stone is what you put at the very top of your building to signify that it is now com completed. It's the last part of it. And so it's, it's, it's kind of in a symbolic way pointing forward to another stone. And amidst that stone, as it's rolled away from the tomb of Jesus, are the shouts, grace to it, grace to it. And so already in the time of Zerubbabel, with the rebuilding of the temple, is Jesus being pointed to who will come. He is the top stone. He is the cornerstone. He is the building upon all of it. That is what you're measuring, those who belong to him. And so you have this picture now of the lamps. 
the lamps that stand before God at his altar. And what is it that gives those lamps oil? The trees, the olive trees. And if you've ever been in Rome, guess what you see all over the place? Olive trees. What's their greatest export? Olive oil. How do we keep those lamps? Well, you've got trees that never stop growing, never stop feeding the lamps. The lamps are, yes, always burning, right? And so even during a time period, here's what he's trying to say, even during a time period when everything looks dark and the holy city is being trampled, guess what? The light's burning. My witnesses are going. My witnesses are going to bear up under the power of the Spirit. And so when you think about who are these two witnesses, there's not just two people. It's all of those people who belong to Jesus Christ, who by the power of the Holy Spirit are testifying to who God is to the people with swords in their hands. It's those of us who stand up and say, it doesn't matter to me what you do to me. Put me in jail, Kimmy, it doesn't matter to me. I'm free. You're not. You're in a prison. And I have grief over that. And I just have a desire that you would come to know Jesus. I'm going to kill you. I have, I have authority. Yes, by God you have authority. You have not, if he didn't want you to have that sword, you wouldn't have it. And you can go ahead and chop, chop it off. It doesn't look that good anyway. So just take, take it down a little bit. But guess what? doesn't matter. Because what matters is I'm free. I know where I'm going. God is leading me into eternity. And so the two witnesses really are that whole body of people uh, alive during that last period of time that are testifying to Jesus Christ and they are doing so under the strength of the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture uh, that God is giving to John here. Uh, but it doesn't stay so good. It seems like something bad happens here. Did you, did you notice this? See, for a period of time, it looks really good. I mean, verse 5 says, If anyone would harm them, fire pour, pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. That sounds kind of cool, by the way. Um, I remember when I was reading the Left Behind series. Of course, the, the people who wrote it couldn't help, but they're going to they're take these symbols and they're going to try to turn them into like physical realities. It, do, it doesn't work. It's hilarious, in fact. But what they did is they, they had these two people, the witnesses, and they're, they're walking around shooting fire out of their mouth. And so they got a scene where this jet fighter is flying over there. I'm like, that's awesome. Now, would I like that power for just one day? All right? It would be good to have it for like one day. You could walk around Grand Island like, do you believe in Jesus? People would be like, whoa! Okay. Seriously. I'm like, what in the world are you trying to do here? These are not people breathing fire out of their mouth. But the, the reference does have its grounds in a historical incident. What is the incident? Well, that fire out of the mouth, that's right there in 2 Kings chapter 1. You want to see it? You got to see it. This is just fun. You know it, but you got to see it. Just flip back over to 2 Kings. See how fun Revelation is? You got fire breathing out of the mouth. This is just good stuff. <clears throat> I want you to see this because this, 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 one, this one kind of makes me laugh a little bit. Second Kings does. So just kind of follow me. I'm going to read through this and, and kind of play with it for just a minute with you. In Second Kings chapter 1, you have this incidence of fire, right? So what's happening is 
if you read your superscription, it says Elijah denounces, denounces Ezekiah. Well, um, Ezekiah, he is the king who should be what representing Yahweh. But the guy is, is guess what? He's really in the outer court. Here's what, here's what happens. It says, after the death of Ahab, who was Israel's worst king, right? Moab rebelled against Israel. So Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. This is the king of Israel who falls through his lattice and is sick. He says, go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Akron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the Tishbite, and I like to call him the Tishbite, because he is going to bite this guy in the tish is what's going to happen. <clears throat> so Elijah the Tishbite, he says, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub? Okay. Now, whenever you hear that name, Beelzebub, do you, do you think of the devil? Because we'll call him Beelzebub, right? Well, this is where it actually comes from. And, it, and it's actually a mis an intentional mispronunciation of the name of this prince. Um, this particular prince um, Beelz, was Beelzebal. And it gets changed to Beelzebub to make fun of it. Because Beelzebub, <clears throat> technically we say it this way, we say Lord of the Flies, right? So when you call Satan Beelzebub, that's what you're saying, is Lord of the Flies. But the real honest translation is Lord of the Crapper. I mean, just kind of put yourself in an outhouse with tape around you. That's Beelzebub. All right. So that's what he's saying. He's actually making fun of him. He's saying, do you want to go talk to the Lord of the Flies? Go ahead. All right. So he says, verse 4, he says, Now therefore, says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Well, why have you returned? They said, Well, this man came to meet us, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of the Lord of the flies, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from your bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now the, the king's response is amazing to me. Here's what he says. What kind of man was he? They answered, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. Who does that remind you of? John? John the Lutheran, right? And it comes later on. The baptizer. Baptizer guy. Okay. And so the prophet said, it's Elijah the Tushbite. And the king said, will you get 50 of my men and send them to him? They went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of the hill. Oh, man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain of the 50. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and the 50. Then fire came down. Killed them all. And that repeats itself several times. So these, these references have their ground in Old Testament incidents. And what he's saying is, when you're a witness, a testifier to God, when God chooses, is there anyone that can stand against that witness? No. 
God literally has used things like fire from heaven and called them down. He's used rain. Remember when Elijah was told, Elijah, I want you just to turn off the rain, and I'll tell you when to turn it back on. And there was such a drought that took place that people began to say, where is God? And Elijah says, oh, he hasn't moved, but you have. And, and if you want that water back on, you're going to have to recognize that it comes from him, right? And so that's what he's saying uh, back over here in the Revelation. He says they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood. Who did that? Moses, right? To strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. In other words, what he's saying is during this last time, my witnesses, those who go out under the strength of my spirit, they go out in the same spirit that Elijah went out under and that Moses went out under, and, and I, I give to them the power to speak a word that cannot be stopped. Or can it? Can it be stopped? And here is the kicker. Just take a look at this. Verse 7 says, when they have finished their testimony, and that's important, when they have finished their testimony, so we're now, what, we're at the end of the end, Right? So during that entire last period of time, the witnesses are speaking. But when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, that would be an angel. It would be a fallen angel, who we call Satan. We'll make war on them, look at this, and conquer them and kill them. We're at the end of the end the witnesses are being killed, right? Really by human beings, but under the power of Satan, who's been authorized by God to kill them because we're at the end of the end. Okay. We see little signs of this in history. And um, What's always been interesting to me is when you look at, when you look at history, you're going to see periods of time where people have risen up and sought to kill the voice of God, right? So, so Lenin and Stalin, when they, when they took power in Russia, the first thing that they did is they said, go kill the Christian pastors, kill the Christian missionaries, burn the Bibles, get rid of that word of God. It's the first thing that Lenin and Stalin did, okay? They declared their state to be atheists, we do not acknowledge or believe in a God, right? And so if you grew up during that period of time that Lenin and Stalin reigned, you were living in a country where, guess what? It's illegal to have a Bible. We will kill you, put you to death if you try to, to, to witness or testify to God. We'll kill you for that. We already killed all the pastors. We killed them all off. There's blood on the ground, right? And so from, from an external standpoint, you look at Russia during that period of time and you'd say, well, the witnesses are dead. How does the word get through that? Interestingly, does the word get through that? Yeah. Looks dead. Dead in the streets. Not dead. Because you can't kill the word of God. Looks dead. Isn't dead. Right? China today. All right, I, th I think there's some really interesting, we were talking, John and I were talking, about, there's some interesting stuff going on in China right now. Okay, so um, the Chinese government for a long period of time said illegal to have a Bible, illegal to talk about Jesus. To this day, you can't 
witness. You can't go out and be a, a missionary. If we send a missionary to China, we can't call him a missionary, right? We don't call him a missionary. We call him a social worker or a teacher, not a missionary, okay? Because it's illegal to witness. Now, if somebody asks you about your own personal faith, what you believe, you can, you can tell them that. You have the authority to do that, okay? Um, right now, the, the Russian government has figured, or the Chinese government has figured out that as long as they tried to persecute the Christians and keep them down, this underground church started that was growing like wildfire, right? Right? And so the government had a powwow and ordered some Domino's pizza and uh, drank a lot of Pepsi, stayed up all night, came up with a good idea. They said, here's our idea is let's not do that anymore. It's not working. What we need to do is take the underground church and bring it above ground. And so what we're going to do is we're now going to start licensing churches. You can be a church, but you've got to have our license. Now, it sounds good. You're like, oh, that's fantastic. China, they got the churches above ground. What they're doing, though, is they're saying you can be a church and you can say whatever you want to say. You cannot have children come to your church. No, because you can't proselytize a child. You can't go to a Chinese church until you're 18 years old or older. Okay. So children can't come to the church. Uh, you, cannot have, you can't have somebody from America come into China and have Chinese people come to that church. They can't go to expatriate churches because that American may try to right, evangelize our people. We don't want that. But you can have a church as long as you do not say anything that violates who we are as the Chinese government. <clears throat> and so if I were a pastor in China today and I stood up and I said, let's take a look at what the Bible has to say about the beginning of life. That life begins in the womb with conception. I now lose my license and I will be in jail because I've spoken a word against the Chinese government who requires women to abort children after their first. And so they've put a lid on the mouth of Jesus Christ. And when I look at it, I'm like, well, can you kill the word? It looks like it from the outside, but not really. You cannot kill the word. What will happen at the end of the end is it will look like, where is God now? The witnesses are being killed. Why doesn't he show up? Well, he's getting ready to show up because it's now the end of the end. And that's where the witnesses are taking us to is the end of the end. Let's stop there.